Welcome to the Recovering Academic Podcast. I'm Amanda. I'm a biochemist working as a scientific editor for grants and manuscripts. I'm Ian. I'm a plant scientist and I'm a virtual lab manager and editor. And I'm Dr. PMS. I'm a neuroscientist working as a biotech salesperson. We all have different experiences outside of the academy, but we are still in recovery. We'll share insights, advice, and problems we encounter as recovering academics managing our careers and lives. Um, hello, everybody, and welcome to another recording of the Recovering Academic Podcast um, with multiple special guests today. But uh, the one who will be speaking most is uh, our guest, Dr. Emily Roberts, um, who is a personal finance educator specializing in early career PhDs. Um, through her business, the Personal Finance for PhDs, she inspires and empowers graduate students, postdocs, and PhDs in their first real jobs to make the most of their money. Uh, she gives seminars at universities and for associations, interviews PhDs on our podcast, which is also called Personal Finance for PhDs, uh, serves as the money coach, and creates courses and workshops on taxes, investing, and more. Um, Emily holds a PhD in biomedical engineering from Duke University, and she lives in Seattle, Washington, uh, with her husband and two children. So, Emily, welcome to The Recovering Academic, and thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's really um, a delight to be with you all. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, right. So, our first question is generally, like, when did you realize you wanted to leave academia? I think the slight rephrasing of that question for yeah. me is, did you ever think you wanted to be in academia? Which okay. the answer to that is no. Um, I went into my PhD um, wanting to be a principal investigator, wanting to you know continue work in research, but not in an academic environment. Um, okay. I just didn't think that sounded like a lot of fun to me. I didn't really want to do the teaching aspect of that job at all. And so doing research in a setting that didn't have the education component to me, you know, at the time seemed like a better idea. I did a year of a postback fellowship at the NIH. And so I was thinking like, oh, I would love to work at a place like the NIH or a national lab or mm -hmm. something, you know, similar to that, but to be able to run my own group. And so that's what I, that's the idea that I had when I um, entered my PhD. And then about somewhere around like two years in, I had become kind of disillusioned with research and it didn't seem so fun anymore. And I was kind of thinking, well, I don't really want to be a PI any longer. Is it really worth it to me to finish the PhD? And so I did a bit of career exploration at that time, took about a year to kind of reevaluate what I really wanted, whether it was better I did my master's or finish the PhD. And ultimately I decided to finish the PhD because of the career doors that that would open for me. Um, and so how you know, long and you were into the PhD when you were, how many years you were into your PhD when you were thinking about, should I quit? Should I com complete? It was about two years in. Okay. And then it took you another two, three years to finish after that? I, I did six years total. So it was another four years. So it was like two years, you know, getting into it, a year of thinking maybe I'll leave, and then three more years to actually finish. <laughs> and like, Leave isn't totally leave research. Yeah, like, leave with yeah. my master's. So yeah. my degree is in biomedical engineering, as you said. Mm -hmm. So it's like highly employable um, <laughs> at whatever level. So mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And did you ever have an eye for, like you mentioned, not wanting to be like an academic PI, but like a PI at a research institute, like the NIH or like a national lab? 
but did you ever have an eye towards industry at all or was that just not on your radar like being like a director at a company or something yeah i definitely thought that was a possibility um i guess by the time i didn't really want to be a pi anymore i also didn't really want to stay in research yeah so i was kind of at that point starting to look at you know what we were calling alternative careers quote unquote um, so I was, I was looking more widely at how I could use my PhD or, or masters if I left with the masters, um, in other ways, uh, that weren't directly doing research basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, cause it, it, currently you're like, you know, a one person business, correct? Like you're a self-employed person. Like did that start at your PhD or like while you were doing your PhD, you were working on building that business or did that come later? Yeah, it actually did start during my PhD, although I did not see it that way at all. So so my business, personal finance for PhDs, basically the personal finance aspect of it for me started um, when I graduated from college and when I started that post back fellowship because I had never been taught anything explicitly about personal finance. I mean, we all absorb, mm-hmm. you know, something from our parents and our families and so forth, yeah. but, but I wasn't ever taught anything about it in school or like my money wasn't really talked about very openly in my family. So I kind of got, you know, to receiving the stipend paycheck and I was like, I have no idea like how to handle this and there's no room for error, <laughs> right, with a mm-hmm. stipend. So mm-hmm. I really right. was like motivated to do the right thing with it, whatever that was. And so that's when I started investigating personal finance just for my own, you know, my own personal use. And then about halfway through my PhD, kind of during or closely following this period of like reevaluation, um, I actually started a personal finance blog, which is called Evolving Personal Finance. It's a predecessor to my current website. And mm-hmm. there I was just blogging about my own money, my own stuff, my own thoughts. The personal finance blogosphere at that time was very, very active. Um, lots of people in it, tons of personal finance blogs. We were very um, collegial, you know, all of us bloggers together. And so I started blogging about money and it was just whatever I wanted to write about. It was very casual. I didn't see it as a business at all. It was just a hobby. And by the time I finished my PhD, I had seen that whenever on my blog I wrote about like grad student specific issues, like I wrote about taxes or I wrote about investing and the specific you know quirks there are to those things um, that mm-hmm. apply to graduate students. Whenever I wrote about that stuff, like those posts were getting you know organic traffic, like my other posts weren't, and those posts were getting comments from people I didn't already know, and I was getting emails from people like asking me like follow up questions about what I was writing about for those grad student specific issues. And that Mm -hmm. kind of clued me in like, oh, like other people are having the same kinds of questions that I have, but I seem to be a little bit more motivated to actually, you know, seek out the answers and write about it in a public Mm -hmm. way. And so that's really how my business started, but it really was rooted in a hobby, right? Years Mm -hmm. of, you know, personal development and and then a hobby of writing about personal finance before I would even really call it like a business or try to like make any money from it. Yeah, so yeah. slowly you started to realize that there was a market for that, right? And you could do something for a living. That's so awesome. Yeah, I mean, it was really kind of backwards, right? <laughs> From how you might uh, conceive like a business uh, properly where you're focused on how to make money first. I was really focused first on um, community at the time, graduate students, but since then, you know, postdocs and, and PhDs who have finished their training as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, like it's a story that we've, heard again mm-hmm. and again just your hobby becomes your actual job like i mean we sort of have made the analogy of like planting seeds and see what grows um to start exploring a path so Absolutely. i'm a little like curious about how you 
like what makes you so curious about money and personal finance because like you're talking about some like absorbed lessons from family and things like that and like you know like the extent of my lessons were like basically don't spend money ever and pay off your bill balance on your credit card every month <laughs> so like you know like I, I mean obviously like buy things that you need but like that bar is set extraordinarily high so like if you don't actually really 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 need it do not hit buy and then like the other lesson I always got was like just round up prices <laughs> so like five dollars is ten dollars and you know twenty dollars is actually thirty or you know whatever it is like yeah so i i never received anything so like yeah. tactical from my parents like i said money wasn't really like openly discussed so i wasn't even taught like hey you should save your money or like anything like that like my parents taught right. me how to write a check at some point yeah. but really what i was doing like observing with my parents i don't want to throw them under under the bus we have a good relationship i love my parents but uh, one of them is a spender and one of them is a saver. And so I saw that kind of tension um, in their relationship. And I was really um, sort of following down the line of my spender parent. So those were like my natural um, inclinations by the time I started receiving, you know, my own income. But I could see that with a stipend and, you know, my living expenses in the D.C. area when I was at the NIH, yeah. Ooh, I, yeah. I could see I can no longer continue to be a spender. Like, this is just not possible anymore. And so what mm -hmm. do I do with my money? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I did really early on, so so the first book I ever read about personal finance was um, Get a Financial Life, uh, Personal Finance in Your 20s and 30s by Beth Kobliner. And it's been, so this was uh, pre-recession. I, I graduated from college in 2007, so that's when I read that book. But it has been updated post-recession if you want to go out and, <laughs> and pick it up. But anyway, it's a very like general introductory level um, financial book. So it talked about like getting a credit card. Like I never had a credit card before. So I used the suggestions in that book to like open a credit card. And one of the other things that it said was um, to start saving for retirement. And that number was, you know, 10% of your gross income should go towards retirement. That's a very standard like, introductory level piece of personal finance advice. And so I was like, okay. So I opened up a Roth IRA and I started contributing 10% of my gross income. And I didn't really realize at the time that that was an extraordinary, extraordinarily odd thing for a graduate student to be doing. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I just mm -hmm. told yeah. myself I had to make room for that in my budget. The book told me to do it. So I'm going to do it. So <laughs> I didn't really consider, you know, graduate school, my, my PhD training to be like an exception um, time, like exceptional time in my personal finance life. Now, the reason I was able to think that way is because ultimately I did my PhD at Duke and Durham is a very like reasonable cost of living kind of place. Yeah. And the stipends that we received were like, okay, for the cost of living there, like, especially like in engineering, like we were paid like fine, I had health insurance. So like, and now that I know more, and I've seen how graduate students are paid at other places, I know that that is not a super common experience, but it was my experience. And so I was able to maintain that like 10% towards retirement savings rate throughout my, my PhD training. And in fact, I increased it um, by the time we had finished, my husband and I, who was, he was also a graduate student at the same time, um, we were saving 18% of our gross income towards retirement. And the, so the weird thing is, and this actually connects to like the transition part of the story, is like because we were doing all this really good work within our finances the whole the whole time we were like in graduate school like we were saving for retirement we also had cash savings because we were um, using mm -hmm. a system called targeted savings accounts which I love to tell other people about now but anyway that's how you save for like irregular expenses that come up you know once or a few times per year that are like large and hard to cash flow on a grad student budget so anyway we had cash savings we had 
our retirement like nest egg basically sort of so we had kind of a wind at our back by the time we were finished with graduate school and that um nest egg actually gave us the confidence to make career choices that we wouldn't otherwise have so for me becoming self-employed obviously really risky my income has increased over time but at the beginning obviously it was nothing like i had to create it out of scratch um, and then for my husband, like he's very risk averse as well. Um, and so he was still considering like staying in academia and you know trying to go the tenure track route, or he was thinking maybe of going into industry. And I think by default, he might have like stayed in a postdoc for a long time, possibly languished in a postdoc, um, because that's kind of like a safe thing to do, even though you're not making a lot of money. It's like a, yeah, it's like a safe thing. But in mm -hmm. fact, what he did was after postdocing for one year with his um, graduate advisor in the same lab, he took a job at a startup, which is something that I feel like he never would have done because he's so risk averse if we hadn't had that nest day fall back on. So right. I didn't mm -hmm. expect this. Like when I started saving at the beginning of graduate school, I wasn't expecting it to like enable my ultimate like career satisfaction, but that's what it did. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm really like passionate about people doing the best they can with their finances while they're in training, because it really can make a difference to the whole rest of your life like in the decisions mm -hmm. you make around your career and your family formation and everything like that so yeah that's that's one of the reasons why i'm i'm passionate about this topic oh that's fascinating yeah that is really yeah. fascinating so i think that is yes i think you're the first person to bring up this point for our audience too um yeah because about, the, one of the main of a lot of people that want to, okay, I'm going to leave academia or I'm thinking about it, but then it's like the money thing, you know, like mm -hmm. how can, uh, it's not a lot of people that have like uh, those, that safety net that you can, okay, now I'm going to spend, I don't know, six months or one year just uh, exploring or investing in, in a career change. Mm -hmm. I totally right. agree. I talk about this all the time with people who are getting probably within about a year of leaving, you know, finishing up their graduate degrees or finishing up their postdocs or, or what have you, like they need to be thinking about how they're going to finance their tr that transition because it can be really useful to take time away from work entirely or to understand that you're going to take a pay cut for a while to do something else. Maybe it's mm -hmm. volunteering. Like mm -hmm. actually one of the things that I did when I was sort of exiting academia and starting my business was I did like a three month fellowship. Um, in science policy, which is one of the careers that I was like interested in. One of the reasons why I finished my PhD is because it's useful to have a PhD in science policy. And doing that fellowship helped me kind of like close the door on that career path, like decide that I didn't want to do it, which is a really useful like decision for me to be able to make. Um, but, you know, if I hadn't had the finances to like move to DC for three months and, you know, do all that stuff, like I wouldn't have had that opportunity, right? Yeah. Right. I think like something else, like we talk about just like a lot is the inherent uncertainty of making any sort of big career mm -hmm. transition but like something that like you've just brought up that's very salient that can make it more certain is if you have a solid finance backing under your foot like some amount of savings for like what is it six months is a standard like emergency savings fund to have i think and like anything else that you've done to like have that solid footing can make any next step you take at least a little less uncertain for mm -hmm. what is going to happen to you. Um, and yeah, and the other thing I love to talk about with people who are still in training um, is side hustling. And like you said, a lot of people that you've interviewed have turned some work they've been doing maybe as a side hustle into their career. And so I see side hustling not, even not like primarily as a means to earn more income, although it's awesome that it does that. 
But if you can select a side hustle that both gives you extra income so we can create the financial security that we were just talking about, and it helps you like maybe explore a new like career area or expand your network, or it gives you an opportunity to demonstrate skills that you've been learning uh, during your graduate training that haven't really found a, a demonstrated place on your, your resume yet. Like those are all excellent uses of like a side hustle that, that don't really have primarily to do with money. Um, and so, yeah, when people are side hustling, I, I really encourage them to make it something that's gonna benefit their career um, and not just like bring in a little bit of income in the meantime. Mm-hmm. No, that's awesome. Do you talk about at all, like the idea of starting your own business and like the finances around that, or are you entirely focused on the personal finances side of things? Yeah, so I am quite focused on personal finance. Like yeah. some people have brought up to me recently about, um, I guess, being able to teach people around, you know, how to handle your money inside a business, or even how to handle like budgeting for a lab. Like those are all sort of Mm-hmm. side oh, like, yeah. options mm-hmm. of personal finance that I could step into, but I, I haven't like to this yeah. point, I guess okay. I feel like I have both the life experience and also like I've read very widely within personal finance. I'm kind of mm-hmm. self-taught in that area. And I'm, while I handle my own business, it's not something I've like studied. So <laughs> I don't like necessarily feel comfortable yet, like teaching around that. Although that could certainly be like a future, you know, thing mm-hmm. that I do. Okay, yeah. So in your job now, you basically consult uh, personal finances and you focus on um, graduate students, undergrads, what it is exactly? Yeah, so I am very focused on the PhD population. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of personal finance education, undergrads are well covered, okay? Everybody talks to undergrads, they focus on undergrads. I mean, if you look at like I actually went to a conference recently, um, Higher Education Financial Wellness, uh, the su- a summit. And so that conference was all these, you know, people from financial aid offices and other people doing financial education inside universities. Um, and they have the undergrads, I mean, they've got it covered, right? But what I noticed, now at this conference, there was some attention being paid to graduate students, which is great. But one of the reasons why I stepped into this area was because I noticed when I was in graduate school, even though Duke actually does like, a better than average job at this of doing financial education for graduate students. Well, postdocs are ignored by everyone at all times. So sorry, sorry, <laughs> postdocs. But for um, you know, they, they actually were doing an above average job, but still I saw that there was this disconnect because um, the people who like they brought in, for example, to speak with the graduate students, like I went to some seminars on like taxes and on investing and on budgeting, like they all were not understanding the audience they were speaking to very well. So like, for example, in the tax like seminars, the CPAs or whatever were coming in and basically treating it as though it were taxes for graduate students were this was the same as taxes for undergrads, like talking about the various, okay, well, there's like the lifetime learning credit you can take. And like, yeah, that's fine. But first, what we need to know is like, how is fellowship, right, income fellowships. Handled? how is scholarship income handled? Like, because we have income, not just like the deductions and the credit side of things, like we have right. income we need to handle. So like, that was one disconnect that I saw. And then another one on the investing side, you know, the investing people that they brought in to talk to us, by the way, they grouped together the graduate students and the professional students, so the future lawyers and doctors and so forth, totally different financial needs, right? So they were talking about, oh, well, okay, once you get your hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loan debt paid off, then you start, you know, using your 401k to save for retirement. What? I have an IRA over here. Yeah, I have some student loan debt, but it's not the same kind of balances that we're talking about on the professional side. Like, can't you talk to me about, like, what needs to happen right now, like not mm-hmm. 10 years from now, like I need to know what's going, you know, 
what I can do right now. So that's really where I stepped in to focus on like what graduate students and as I said, ultimately postdocs and people with their PhDs like out in the workforce, um, what they can do right now to improve their finances. It's not like a future uh, game, right? Like what you do right now during training matters a lot. Yeah, like this, you were talking about the CPAs with um, doing taxes and how we have fellowship income. I remember when I was a I was a postdoc and I got fellowship income and that's not, they don't take out taxes for that. And I went to a CPA and they wanted like, they were like, oh, well, you're self-employed. So they wanted me to pay self-employment tax. And I was like, this cannot be right. Like, Well, I'm so glad you had the intuition to say that cannot be right, because I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who have paid self-employment tax for years on fellowship income. And it's very disturbing and sad. And I hope they get it corrected because they need to get all that money back. But yeah, so it's this weird thing where like some people with fellowship income don't pay income tax, right? So they're radically underpaying their tax. And some people with fellowship income overpay Mm -hmm. income tax because somebody somewhere thinks they're self-employed. Um, and so we have these like two extremes for the same population. Wow. Yeah. But I'm so glad you brought up taxes because one of my big, like, I think like overall missions is my, in my <laughs> business is just for people to have like more awareness around, Hey, fellowship income, you do still owe income tax. And if your university or whoever's you know, administering your fel- administering your fellowship, if they're not withholding income tax for you, you may need to pay quarterly estimated tax. So, hey, listeners, if you're receiving fellowship income as a grad student, postdoc, whatever, um, and you're not having income tax withheld, look into quarterly estimated tax. Um, I have a whole workshop on it if you need more help with that. But yeah, we just need a lot more awareness around in our whole community around like that issue because so many people who I talk to again get an, a nasty surprise at tax time either in their you know first year of having a fellowship or maybe three years into having a fellowship that they should have been paying tax the whole time. It's not a pretty scene. Yeah, I don't remember the reason for it, but like my first couple of years as a PhD student, we had to pay est- quarterly estimated tax too. Um, Probably because then you were a self-employed and then they were not withdrawing the taxes. Yeah, I mean, that could have been the reason why. Because like after the third year, I, it was just normal annual tax but well i can tell you my model for this actually so when i'm saying the word fellowship so people who do win like external fellowships or something like you know the nsf grf Mm -hmm. or something like that um it's very typical that the universities will not withhold income tax on that now some do actually duke does or they offer at any rate uh well it's it's actually not nice because then you get a form 1099 miscellaneous which is why everyone then thinks you're self-employed so it's actually kind of a mess but um, anyway, so when I use the word fellowship, you know, sometimes that's the case. But the other case where this is triggered is training grant income. Yes, that's yeah. what so happened. On a with training me. grant in the first year or so of your PhD, then that's another situation where it's pretty likely that taxes won't be withheld and you'll have to handle all on your own. So it's really good that someone gave you like a heads up about that, Ian. Yeah, well, I mean, it was literally just part of the program, right? Like every graduate student at YSU, like that was what they did. Like it's like at our program director, people told us, like, do this. That's awesome because most people do not get that heads up. Like many universities are afraid to say the word tax in any capacity. Mm -hmm. So they'll just say, here's your paycheck. We cannot tell you anything about it. Yeah. I went to the office of postdoctoral affairs to find out like, what do I like, what do I do about taxes? Um, Because it was April 1st. And obviously I was like, oh, I need to do something about this. Um, And they were just like, oh, we we can't give you any advice on that. Yeah, yeah, even to the extent of not saying the words 
quarterly estimated tax. Like, oh, yeah. that's how far some universities take it. But I'm glad that at some places, like your, uh, like WashU, for example, mm-hmm. it's interesting you bring that up. I'm actually speaking at WashU later this fall. So, um, yeah, they've hired me to give a talk there. Um, so some places they will give you a little bit of information or they'll hire an outside person like me to give like a seminar or a workshop on taxes. Mm-hmm. So I think the tide is turning a little bit, especially post Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the tax you know reform that was passed um, at the end of 2017. That for me brought a lot more, a lot more interest to me around um, you know people asking me to speak on this topic. I guess because it was sort of in the air that people were like, whoa, what just happened with like this new yeah. tax law? Um, so I, I I saw a lot more people coming to me for uh, for education and advice around that. Okay, kind mm. of. Do you have a typical work day? Yeah, so mm, <laughs> it it is all over the map a little bit. I guess I can tell you what I spend a lot of my time uh, doing. Mm-hmm. So so one of the main ways that I make money um, is by speaking at university. So mm-hmm. some ta- sometimes I'll be you know traveling, and then my work day is obviously just airports and hotels and you know campuses and that kind of thing. So it can kind of be all over the map. But when I'm when I'm not traveling, um, well, I communicate with people a lot. Like I am pitching, you know, my services to universities and also to individuals. I have lots of calls with like, um, you know, staff members at universities, see if they'll hire me. Um, I talk with, I offer everyone who subscribes to my mailing list a chance to hop on the phone with me. So I can kind of hear, and these are, you know, postdocs or so I kind of hear like, hey, what's going on with you financially? Like what questions do I have? Do you have so I can incorporate that into what I do through my website? Um, a lot of my time spent right now is in podcasting. So I have yeah. calls like this. So I, I interview people for my <laughs> podcast as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I do the interviews and I, I've hired a couple virtual assistants to help me with like the editing and the show notes creation for the podcast. But I still mm-hmm. like set up all the interviews and and do all of that myself um, and do you know quality control listens to the interviews afterwards. So spend a lot of my time podcasting. And then another big chunk of time is in creating new content, whether that is, you know, articles that I write for my website, which is obviously free and open to whoever, or it's um, developing the seminars that I give and also developing the the products that I sell to individuals. So one big thing that I do every year is a, a tax workshop, because while some universities will hire me and get me in front of their students and postdocs so they don't have to pay anyone directly, and I love that, Many universities will not offer the kind of support that we're talking about, so I do offer the same thing for individuals through my site. So it's like developing that content, um, updating myself on the new, you know, the changes to the tax law every year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I create other kinds of workshops as well, and I coach individuals. So these are all the sort of things that I spend time on in my business, um, and networking with other self-employed PhDs, that sort of thing. Um, in mm-hmm. terms of my day, so as you know, Ian mentioned at the start of the show, I have two young children, so I actually take advantage of my flexible schedule to spend a lot of time with them. Mm-hmm. So often I'm up at you know 6 a.m. or so, and I get a little bit of work in an hour or two before my children wake up, so I work at that time of day. They're in some childcare and preschool and so forth, so I have nice blocks of time when they're doing that when I can work, but then I'm also with them a lot, usually in the afternoons. Mm-hmm. Um, I work during nap time, and sometimes I work in the evenings as well if I have the energy for it, if something's really exciting me. Um, yeah, so it's kind of a, a typical day, I guess, kind of split between like parenting and talking with other people and creating content. I've really had to work on my time management skills. That's been something that like, that started during graduate school, but I wish I knew in graduate school all that I know now about time management because it's gotten a lot more like uh, intense once you add um, other small humans into the mix. Yeah, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I-, I second that. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I take it like your primary office is like in your home. 
Mm-hmm. Yep, you yeah. can see behind me. This is my living room. So, so I live in Seattle, and we live in an apartment. Like it's a, it's actually mm-hmm. pretty small for us. Now, <laughs> we moved here and into this apartment before we had children. It was a great size at that point, but now you know what used to be in my office is now the children's bedroom. So I'm kind of out in my living room, which is why I do all my podcasting when my children are asleep, so they're not uh, <laughs> making a bunch of noise and disturbing things. Um, yeah, I, once we be, once we uh, become homeowners, once we buy a place, I'm, I'm I aspire to have my own dedicated office with a door that closes, but we're not ooh, quite ooh. there yet. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. No. Good ambitions. Like, yeah, yeah, I live really in Chicago great. and like also have a small apartment, but I don't share it with anyone but my cat, so it's okay for us. Um, okay. So, like, our next question, like, I mean, it sounds like you may have just answered this, but like, you know is the time management like the biggest challenge you face in your career now or what is the biggest challenge for your position now um time management i feel like is a challenge yes but it's kind of for everyone <laughs> time management yeah. yes. um for me and my business specifically i would say that a big big challenge is that i have dedicated myself to serving people who don't have a lot of money which means that i can't approach my business in the same way like like I wouldn't become a financial advisor to serve graduate students because financial advisors have um, a structure in their businesses that require lots of fees for them to to run it and lots of assets for them to manage and so forth, which is not, like, like I said earlier, I'm very, very passionate about serving my own community, the community that I came out of. And so I can't have the same kind of business model that some other people do in the financial space, right? Because they only serve like high net worth individuals or people with high incomes. So what I, one of my biggest challenges really is like, being able to get my content, um, this education, or to be able to work one-on-one with people at a price point that they can handle. So that's why I go through the universities a lot because they have budgets Mm -hmm. and they often pay people for professional development, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what I do. And so I really love when I can get universities to hire me so that my content can get in front of the people I want to serve without them having to lay out any money. Mm -hmm. But then the flip side of that is when that doesn't happen or when I need to reach people Mm -hmm. in a way that um, I can't do through the universities as like an intermediary, as an intermediary, then I have to make products that are at a price point that they can handle <laughs> for graduate right. students, and to some extent, you know, PhDs with higher income. So I've still been experimenting around that. You know, I said I serve one-on-one as a coach. Like, you know, that happens. Some people can afford that. So I'm always trying to like tweak my product to make them um, compatible for the people that I'm trying to serve. Yeah, that's yep. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. That's hard to figure out. Yeah, managing how you charge people mm-hmm. is definitely like I mean for any business right. that's challenging, right? Well, and also figuring out like um, also being able to make a living off of that as well. Right. Yeah, like I'll throw in like I mean I work at a small company that's a startup, and like yeah, how we figure out charging our clients is mm-hmm. super complicated, and like changing their fees and yeah, it's hard. Yeah, one of the difficult things coming out of academia um, is the sort of toxic culture of volunteerism that exists inside academia that people outside of academia can't participate in, right? Like, I can't give away my seminars for free, although I've been asked to on many occasions because this is one of the things that I can charge a nice price for that helps me stay solvent so that I can, you know, turn around and do other things Mm -hmm. for free. But I can't give away that content for free. Like that's what, something that I actually always um, charge for, even if people, you know, I've been approached with the, hey, we're a nonprofit. Like, can't you do this for free? And I'm like, well, if I had a salary and a full-time job, maybe I would do that for free. But 
I need, you know, these speaking fees to, to keep my business open. So yeah, so it's, it's really, it, it wasn't so hard for me to break that mindset, mm-hmm. but it's hard for me to put that mindset on other people who don't have it already, like my potential clients. Well, they're not potential clients because they weren't going to pay me, but people <laughs> right. who want my people who want my content, right? I have to convince them that this is something that is worth paying for sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, in the freelance community, mm-hmm. like I know like some people sort of have like a rule of, you know, basically they will do like a certain number, like usually like two or three like free things a year if, if it crosses off a couple of other boxes, right? It's passion, prestige, and pay. Like those yeah. are the three and I think it takes two of the three boxes you can consider doing something for not no pay. But like a lot of freelancers, I know it's like, yep, I did my three for a year and I'm saying no to everybody else. And like yeah. that at least frees them up. Like, yep, I'm just following my rule. If you want to approach me next year, great. Get your request in early. Um, yeah, I have developed that to some degree. So like, yeah. for example, I said that I offer anyone who gets on my mailing list a chance to talk with me. So it's not, so they have that. It's like a 15 minute call right now. So if you have like, really quick question and you want to get it to me and I can answer it like within you know five minutes or something then that's something that I can do but other than that I'm going to have to say well you can book a coaching session with me and we can talk about yeah. something in depth um, and yeah I'm trying to figure out for the people who ask me to speak for free what I can give them I'm really not sure what that is at this point maybe like a short Q&A virtually or something but anyway what I do requires a lot of travel which obviously um, takes that's a lot of time expensive. and yeah. is expensive on its own yeah, so it, it does narrow the kinds of um, organizations that I can work with, um, mm-hmm. unfor- unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, to I just kind of tell myself like to keep giving away what I do give away for free, which is like my podcast and like all the mm-hmm. articles on my website. I actually yeah. give like I give a lot of stuff a on lot. like the podcast. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. Um, and so I I have to you know I do all that for free. So like there have to be places within my business that I charge and I mm-hmm. charge well. Um, to mm-hmm. keep doing all that other free stuff. So like for graduate students who are really struggling with cash flow, there's absolutely no way that they could be able to hire me as a coach. Like I can still point them to all those existing resources. Mm-hmm. Yep. No. That's yep. so awesome. Yeah, and that yeah, seems like exactly. a really great balance. Yeah, so like you sound a lot more happy professionally like <laughs> now than you were during your PhD. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't even really like to think about my PhD that much anymore. <laughs> right. um, you know, I think a lot of people finish their PhDs kind of jaded, and, and mm-hmm. I did too. And um, I feel like, you know, five, I, I defended five years ago. So, like, it's been, mm-hmm. it's been a, quite a long time since then. So, I spent some um, energy in the first couple years after I finished, like, um, being concerned about what other people might think about my choice to go in this completely other direction with mm-hmm. my career like was I disappointing my advisor or like my my peers or my committee members or other people who had invested in me you know during my PhD and I've, I've kind of somehow been able to leave that behind and not um, feel so concerned about what they're doing partially because I feel so fulfilled um, in my business I'm really happy doing this and as I've had more success in my business and gained you know, a reputation and people come to me now, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's word of mouth recommendations for my services at this point. Like, I feel like I'm really doing something that benefits this community uh, deeply. And I feel really happy and satisfied around that. Whereas at the beginning of my Mm -hmm. business, which was more of a struggle and no one knew who I was, and I had to, you know, cold pitch everybody for anything I would ever do. 
it, it was a little bit more like, am I really making the right decision? But now that I get so much feedback about how much, you know, my material helps people, I feel much more. Yes, of course, I'm, I'm happy doing it. And I feel also less um, insecure around like the choices that I've made. Mm-hmm. Um, I can also very easily see how the skills I gained during my PhD, like what we might call like translatable skills or transferable mm-hmm. skills, benefit me as a business owner, or as an entrepreneur now. Like, I, yes, of course, I've moved completely away from the specific subject matter that I was during my that I was pursuing during my PhD but um, it's still actually important that I have those letters behind my name when I serve people inside academia like I, res- I have a lot more credibility with that community because I actually finished <laughs> um, because yeah. they can see that I like survived this experience that they're all right. trying to survive as well <laughs> um, and so yeah people feel like they can relate to me a lot better than maybe some other financial educators that they might have access to um, so that's sort of a real like value add that I have because I stuck with it and finished graduate school. Yeah. 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 Okay. I found similar um, when I go into academia, like having the letters behind my name is, is helpful. Yeah. Same I, here. Yeah. I mean, our business, like, yeah, the business I work for, like they, it is, it does matter that we actually have PhDs on staff for the audience we serve to. You feel safer because people kind of understand you speak the same language, right? Yeah. So it is. Yeah. It is like when thing. people, I mean, the language thing is really important because like we were talking mm-hmm. about fellowships earlier and being self-employed or not. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's really important when I you know speak about taxes that I already know all the terms that are coming at me. When people say like tuition waiver, I know what they're talking about and I can ask follow-up questions to figure out exactly like to translate to the IRS like code, like what exactly they're talking about, because that's not a term that the IRS uses, but is, right. is a term that we use inside academia. So that like translating role is really important in some areas. So like also one of my other um, really areas that I love to talk about aside from tax, tax <laughs> is one of my favorite subjects and investing is the other one. Obviously I told you, you know, earlier that I started out early with investing and it was really beneficial for me, but like investing is really challenging for people still in PhD training because unless yeah. you're a postdoc mm-hmm. employee, you're not, you don't have access to like the 403B or whatever. So like people can often get really stuck at that step of, well, what do I do? I know I'm supposed to save for retirement, but I don't know what to do because there's no 401k to sign up for. So like I can, you know, speak to them in the way that they understand like, okay, if you have this type of income, then you're able to use an IRA. And if you don't have that type of income, you can't use an IRA, but here's what you can do to still save for retirement, um, even though you have like fellowship income and and so forth. This is where, like, I feel, like, I guess extraordinarily fortunate. Like, my dad was a banker, so, like, <laughs> I think I was set up fairly well, even though, like, I probably haven't used the wisdom enough, but, because, like, I've had an IRA, like, since my early 20s. Like, what I, how I invest with it is still very an open question to me. I'm like, I don't get what to do here. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I was like, index funds? Sure. I, you know, like, I just don't know. But like, well, you know, I can tell like, you yeah. in one sentence, uh, you're doing the right thing. Index yeah. funds are the way to go. Right. Um, or like, I think I own a few exchange traded funds, ETFs as well. Perfect. But anyway, like, I, I mean, these are things that like, you know, I sort of just take for granted because like, yeah, like I was set up with this. It's like, yep. And like, you know, like there are all sorts of weird finance quirks out there. Like I also grew up in the state of Alaska. So like the way my parents funded college was like in the state of Alaska, you get a check from the state government every year just for living there. Um, <laughs> yeah, basic income, right? Yeah, yeah, it's the permanent fund dividend. Like no other state has it. Like mm-hmm. it's it invested oil money. Like you know, anyway. But like my parents took that check away from all of us kids, and like every year that was our college fund. Basically, they invested that. And like that's how I went to college. So that's awesome. That is really cool. 
Yeah, well, like, all my other friends were like, yeah, I got my car stereo in high school, like, and it's like, oh, awesome. <laughs> I don't have that. <laughs> well, I'll I'm tell you, Ian, you're, you're very fortunate. Um, I know. The great, yeah, great no, majority of exactly. people <laughs> don't have, they either don't have parents who have the ability to help them, like their parents are working on their own stuff and they, they don't have it, like, together very well, or they have the good intentions and they know what to do with their own money but they don't understand how to translate that to a graduate student or to a postdoc because again, there's no 401k to sign up for. Your income is very limited and so cash flow is a real challenge. Oh, you can defer your student loans, that's an option, but should you? And you know, so um, there's all these kinds of questions that are very unique for this like PhD training time of life. And so even if other people have their stuff together, they might not be able to help you, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of why I specialize in this area, right? Because it's so, um, unusual for financial education to be focused on this population. I, I will say I think I'm the only one <laughs> doing it at, at a national level. There are people who volunteer at universities and, and work with graduate students and stuff um, at that level, but I believe I'm the only person doing it nationally. Like as a full-time, yeah. Right, yeah. Right. So okay. could you repeat to our listeners how they can get in touch with you, watch your, uh, read your blog, website, yeah. all these things? Yeah, the best place to go is definitely my website, which is, so again, my business name is Personal Finance for PhDs, so the website URL is pforphds.com, pfforphds.com, that's definitely the best place to go, um, you'll find all the podcasts there, all my articles, a way to get in contact with me, sign up for my mailing list, like I said, you'll be on there, and uh, you can have a chat with me if you'd like, and uh, so that's the best place, but I'm also on Twitter, the handle is same thing, pf4phds. Um, yeah, those are probably the two um, best places. And of course, if you want to meet me in person, advocate for me to come to your university. Um, I'm often hosted by graduate schools as part of like professional development programming or often, or sometimes personal wellness, if they have like a series on that. So those are two really good places where my stuff uh, fits in. Yes, I think that might be underappreciated, the link between finance and wellness. Yes. That's awesome. Right. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. Thank you very much joining us um yes so uh everyone um thank you again for listening and we'll see you on the next uh, episode of the recovering academic podcast see you next time bye bye thanks for listening to the recovering academic podcast our music is from bensound.com under a creative commons license if you like what you hear please rate and review us on apple or wherever you listen to our podcast this helps other people find out about us we want to hear from you. Send your questions or comments to show at recoveringacademic.net or on Facebook at Recovering Academic Podcast. You can also find all of us on Twitter. I'm at Lady Scientist. I'm at Dr. Underscore PMS. And I'm at IH Street. And the show is at Recovering Acad. You can find all our episodes and subscribe to our newsletter on our website at recoveringacademic.net. And don't forget, there is sunshine outside the ivory tower.